Today, as most of you know, we are coming to the final study in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Those of you who worship with us regularly on a Sunday morning will know that we have been spending our Sundays in Nehemiah and that Nehemiah in the year 445 BC, before Christ, arrived in Jerusalem after hearing about the dilapidated condition of the city, and it had been ruined for uh, several decades by this stage, and he was able to unite the people of Jerusalem and build a perimeter wall around the city. And so for the first time in decades, Jerusalem as a city had a hope and a future, a place where families could put down spiritual roots and grow. And of course, they emphasized again and again, not simply the building of the wall, but the regeneration of the city, but a city with a moral and spiritual heartbeat. And so, as we come to chapters 11 and 12, it's a time of great rejoicing for the people in Jerusalem. So, let's begin at chapter 11, verse 1. And now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten to live in Jerusalem the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. The people commended all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. And as chapter 11 develops, you will see lists of the descendants of Judah, the descendants of Benjamin. Then you have a list of those coming from the tribe of Levi, who were the priests, then the Levites underneath again, then the gatekeepers, and as you go through into chapter 12, again you see another list of priests and Levites, and then as we come to verse 27, Nehemiah writes once again, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of the cymbals, harps, lyres. The singers were also brought together from the region around Jerusalem. And then Nehemiah records the various places that the singers and Levites came from. And then in verse 30, when the priests and Levites had purified themselves, ceremonially they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. And then, of course, you have another list of the leaders from Judah. Then jumping down to verse 38, similarly, you've got a list of folks who have come from various parts, and a choir had by this stage gone up onto the perimeter wall, and then a second choir, and as they marched around the city of Jerusalem, they met in the temple. And so we're coming in at verse 40. The two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God, and so did I, together with half the officials, as well as the priests. And then again, as his pattern is, he lists the priests who were present. Then in verse 43, And on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Most of us, I suspect, have moments in our lives that we remember for the rest of our days. And I'm thinking particularly September 11, 2001. I suspect for those of us who are old enough, we remember exactly where we were and what took place that day. It had such an impact on us as a nation. 
But I wanted to ask this morning, do you remember where you were on November the 9th, 1989? November 9th, 1989. I know exactly where I was. I was sitting in my home in Scotland. I was watching a BBC news broadcast and the news anchor broke in to say we have a developing story coming out of Berlin this evening. And the BBC announced for the first time that the East German government were to open the Berlin Wall the first time since 1961, 28 years, would open the Berlin Wall at midnight that night. Hundreds of thousands made their way to Berlin, gathered at the wall, and sure enough, at midnight, when the gate was open, people from the east flooded through, as did traffic and people on bicycles. And the next day, this is one of the famous scenes from the next morning, people had gathered on top of the wall, there was singing, there was celebration, there was incredible joy, people were crying, hugging one another. And if you remember that event or can visualize it in your mind from the picture, transfer that back to Nehemiah's day. And that's exactly what was happening in chapters 11 and 12. Thousands upon thousands of people had gathered in Jerusalem, were climbing up onto the wall, as well as the senior leaders of the city, along with the priests and the Levites and the various tribal leaders were there, some from the surrounding towns and regions, and they were marching round the wall, giving praise and thanksgiving to God for all that had taken place. Because you know, of course, that they had been living with the belief that it was impossible to regenerate the city of Jerusalem and the wall would never be complete. And over the last six or eight weeks, we have seen again and again the resistance, the opposition that was given to Nehemiah. And I suspect Nehemiah at times honestly wanted just to shake his head, throw up his hands and say, I'm done with this. But he didn't. And he didn't for this reason. The hand of God was upon Nehemiah. And if you remember, there were multiple times during that period when he prayed. Sometimes praying when he was putting mortar and bricks on the wall. Other times praying when he'd uh, engage with civil engineers. Other times when he was working with stonemasons. He kept going and kept going and kept going. And now at last the city had a future. And that gives you a sense of what's happening here. Several times in chapter 12 we read, They rejoiced because God had given them joy. And it was an overwhelming joy. It was bubbling up within them. They had a sense and understood exactly what God was doing, that not only was he faithful to them in the past, but he now had given them a future. And they were excited and forward-looking and could not wait to see what was going on. In fact, verse 43 in many ways sums it up. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Now, please understand the magnitude of what is taking place here. This is an entire city. 
In fact, it flows over into the surrounding region when thousands had gathered for a single purpose. And that single purpose, as you get further and further into the passage, is what? To bring worship and adoration to the living God. That's what was going on. Now, when we think of worship, sometimes we're tempted to think of worship in a very narrow or fixed way. And we tend to think of worship, which composes of various elements. And it may be that your favorite prayer of all time is the Lord's Prayer. And of course, we associate that with worship. We say it regularly. For others, it will be your favorite hymn. And we tend to think of hymns, of course, as worship, and they are. Or it may be that you enjoy the Apostles' Creed because it sums up for you the essence of your faith. You grew up with it. It brings comfort to you to be able to say it again and focus on the meaning of its content. Now, there's nothing wrong with understanding worship in these ways, but it is so much greater than simple component parts. Now, about every 18 months or so, I will remind you of what I think is the best definition of worship I've ever come across. And it comes from Archbishop William Templeton. And he said this, worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of the conscience by his holiness the nourishment of the mind by his truth, the purifying of the imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of the will to his purpose. All this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. What a wonderful, all-encompassing, comprehensive, exhaustive definition of worship and what it means. That is what's happening here in chapters 11 and 12. Here is a new day for the people of Israel. The regeneration of the city is already taking place. They now, for the first time in decades, have a perimeter wall to protect them. They can begin to settle families for decades to come. They have now put in place fresh running water, sewage, marketplaces are beginning to appear, trade is coming back, employment is beginning to increase, and life is being restored. But please understand this. It was happening because God was at the center of who they were, and more importantly, he was at the center of their national life. That's what's happening in Jerusalem. That's why the people were excited. They were filled with thanksgiving and gratitude. The festivities and the sense of worship and adoration was almost palpable in downtown Jerusalem that day as thousands upon thousands gathered, climbed on the city wall and gave praise and honor and thanksgiving to God that's what is going on here. Now, we know that worship is our natural, instinctive response to the love and grace of God, and it ought to be. But please don't miss out 
what else happens here. Go back to verse 30 and notice what it says. When the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. Now, the temptation for us is to focus on the dedication of the wall, the incredible, unprecedented construction that took place is worthy of applause, no question. But on that day of celebration, Nehemiah and Ezra took it to a whole new level because they understood that the construction in and of itself of significant, almost beyond measure in terms of its significance and what it would accomplish. But they took it to another level by encouraging the people to purify themselves. And here is Ezra and Nehemiah not only involved in ceremonial cleansing, they are challenging the people of Jerusalem to purify their souls. Now, what does that mean? It means this. The same principle applies to people in 444 BC as it does to us in the 21st century. Because the purifying of the soul is not a casual thing. It means this, that you are willing and glad by opening up the deepest recesses of your heart and mind and soul and allowing the light of God's love and grace to shine in those recesses that you are uncomfortable sharing with anyone. Those hidden places, the motivations, the desires, the wills, the behavior pattern, the thought process that is ungodly by taking that fearless, courageous step. You are opening up the heart and mind and soul and saying, Father, help me understand that repentance is not simply a series of apologies. And it's not that. It has never been that. Repentance involves apology. It involves articulating sorrow. But please understand this. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. Are we actually changing? Is there change in our life? Does our prayer time become more intense? Do we have a passionate longing for holiness? Do we long to spend time in His presence? Do we long to change internally as well as externally, externally both as individuals and as a nation? That's what's happening right here. And it is a painful, unnerving, unsettling process when God gets a hold of your very soul and begins radical, intense surgery that will cut away those areas in your life that do not reflect his love and grace. 
And it means this, recalibrating and retuning every area of your life to become more Christ-like. That's what's happening. And as you can imagine, the people in Jerusalem were never the same again because God was at work in a spectacular fashion. And such an experience takes time and effort and investment and energy. Our walk with him, which Brian prayed about in his prayer, is not a casual thing. You will not wake up tomorrow morning, Monday morning, and say, surprise, surprise, suddenly, overnight, I have become holy. It does not work that way. But it works when we are open to his influence. It works when we long to get closer to him, that he shapes and fashions us, heart and mind and soul. And what does he do? He retunes and recalibrates our deepest affections and loves. That's what was taking place there. Now let me pause for a second and suggest that you use your imagination and imagine this afternoon around 3, 3.30, you've had lunch together as a family, you've gone home Sunday afternoon, is a little more relaxed, hopefully, in your home, and the telephone rings. And someone says, this is the operator from the White House, can you please hold for the president? And you think, Okay, some of my friends are having fun with me here. And then when you hear the president speak on the phone, you begin to realize this is not my friends. And he says, I wonder if it's possible, could we meet tomorrow, Monday the 18th, around 3 o'clock? I'll be glad to send Air Force One to you. It will pick you up at Greenville Airport around 1. It's about an hour and 15 minutes of a flight. You'll have no problem getting through traffic. And if you could be here sharp at 3 o'clock, it would be great to sit down with you. I would like to chat. And your response is, Mr. President, on any other Monday, I could do that. On any other, just tomorrow is just so busy, I can't. And then there's a sigh, and he says, well, what about next Monday, the 25th? Is that possible at 3 o'clock? You check your calendar and say, absolutely, 3 o'clock next Monday, we'll be fine. Well, again, we'll send Air Force One. Well, actually, I have back-to-back -back meetings right up to 3 o'clock on the 25th. Is it possible you could come this way and we can meet in the lobby at the West Inn or the Hyatt or somewhere like that? Would that work? You'll not miss me. I'll have on an orange T-shirt, flip-flops, and a pair of shorts. You'll not miss me. I'll be right there. Of course, that becomes ludicrous, doesn't it? Because we know when someone of significance wants to meet with us, we quite naturally will drop every other commitment and appointment we have in order to do that. That would be a memorable occasion. But please hear me when I say this. When the Lord of Lords and King of Kings wants to meet with us, are we ready to take that appointment and meet with him in prayer? To come into the presence of him who is eternal and infinite, immeasurable, 
transcendent in majesty, imminent in grace, he who is omnipotent and omnipresent. His very essence is defined by holiness and justice and power and love and grace. For in him we are refreshed. In him we are renewed. In him we get so much greater perspective. And how often after worship on a Sunday morning we leave and the challenges and difficulties that we have been focusing on take a much lesser priority in our life. Why? Because we're no longer focused on the challenge we face because we are now focused on his enabling grace. That's what makes the difference. That's what the people in Nehemiah's day understood. That's what we need to grasp again in our own understanding. Because we know this, that worship leads to moments of refreshment and renewal. Worship takes us to action and activity. It removes from us apathy and indifference. It strengthens and sustains hope. It makes us the people we are. That's why worship, we say at First Presbyterian, is what? The highlight of our weekend. And we don't say that by chance or accident or in a casual offhand manner. It is quite intentional. Quite intentional. Now, having applied it to ourselves as individuals this morning, how do we take this passage and apply it to ourselves as a congregation? Well, there are several things. If you wish it, worship with us regularly, you will know this, that on Sunday morning, we long that our worship would be pleasing and glorifying to God. Because in the midst of our worship, we recognize that for us, worship is not simply an activity, but it is in fact the very definition of our identity. That's the point. We are a worshiping people. We give him the first place and the last place and everywhere in between. Because as a church, not only do we want to be warm and welcoming, we want to be a place that provides a secure spiritual home for all ages, nine all the way to 90. We want to be a place that will spend time in God's Word, learning principles and lessons that we can apply to our lives in order to live out our faith that week. We want to be a place where God is worshipped. And we will take a stand for Christian things and Christian values. Thankfully, not every Sunday, but fairly regularly, we will deal with controversial issues. Over the last 18 months, we have taken Sundays when we've looked at human sexuality, we've looked at abortion, we've looked at suicide. If a difficult or sensitive passage comes up in Scripture, we're going to deal with it because we believe that if we are to be the people of God in a 21st century downtown context in one of the fastest growing cities in the nation, we will come back again and again and again and be 
biblical in our ministry and missional in our focus. And we will do it intentionally because we believe that's who God is calling us to be. Now, I am convinced, and you heard me say it last Sunday, that in the midst of all of the excitement and growth that we are experiencing, and please hear this, I mentioned it downstairs and almost forgot to say it, that when we ran statistics recently of our almost 3,900 members, the average age of our new members is 37. The average age of our current members is 39. When I said that to one of our elders, he said, Richard, you're dyslexic. It is, in fact, 93. <laughs> At 39, the Presbyterian pattern across the nation is the opposite of aging congregations, and we are getting younger with thriving youth and children's ministry. The other pattern across the nation is this, that most Presbyterian churches have more funerals than baptisms. And last fall, when I looked back 12 months, we had 19 funerals and 43 baptisms. We are bucking the national trend right across the board. God is at work. And I'm utterly convinced that as he has taken us through Nehemiah, he is preparing us for the next phase of life and ministry here. Our best days are still to come. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture this morning. And thank you for all that we have learned from it. Engage us, please, in those deep recesses of our souls Help us to purify ourselves and then simply but graciously enable us by your grace to be the people you're calling us to be. Father, enable us to be people of grace and love that others might be drawn to the life and ministry of our congregation simply because we care. Father, hear our prayers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.